1: was grateful, just grateful, oh, I get to be a part of this, I'm so grateful for that. Then you start to go, well, wait a minute, (laughs) I would like to do more.
0: Hey, everyone, I'm Evelyn, the host of Repin. I started this podcast for many, many reasons, one of which was about giving voice to underrepresented communities. I am a person of color. I'm an American born Chinese. And as a child, I dreamt about working in the entertainment industry. Now at the time, I wasn't sure that was possible for a daughter of immigrant parents. Why? Because I really didn't see any Asian faces on screen and I definitely didn't hear about anyone who looked like me working behind the scenes. Now with decades of experience under my belt as a producer and director, and through my conversations, both privately and here on Reppin' with my guests, I'm reminded that those who preceded me were the ones who slowly chipped away at the barriers that were in place. I've been able to work in entertainment and have enjoyed so many other great opportunities because of their efforts. But what was that like to take the limited roles that portrayed terrible stereotypes? How did they negotiate that professionally more importantly, personally, well, my next guest has experienced the evolution of representation in Hollywood and in his personal life. He's an incredibly accomplished Japanese Canadian actor with over 200 credits. Some of that includes X Files, Smallville, Amazon's Man in the High Castle, Apple's C, Altered Carbon, and he will be joining Star Trek Discovery. He's also an award-winning playwright for Indian Arm. He's going to share some of his stories today. Please welcome Hiro Kanagawa. Hiro, thank you so much for coming on the show. I know you're up in Canada working your face off, but thank you so much for making time.
1: My pleasure entirely. Thanks for uh, this opportunity to reach your audience. And yeah, I'm at the Banff Center, which is a very beautiful facility in the Rocky Mountains for arts and creativity. And I'm working on my latest play here, but I'm very happy to be here and have this opportunity to to speak with you.
0: Thank you so much. Now, you have amassed over 200 credits. You're an incredible actor. You're an award-winning playwright. You are a storyteller. So I can't wait to get into that. But first, congratulations on joining Star Trek Discovery.
1: Thank you so much, yes.
0: Tell me a little bit about your character and, like, being a part of one of the most probably successful and enormous franchises in television history. Can you tell me about your character, what you're excited about, and you know what fans can look forward to?
1: My character, Dr. Hirai, is a Xeno linguist. He's an expert on alien languages. The thing about him that is most exciting for me is that in this past season that just aired, Dr. Hirai was very instrumental in communicating with a species called the Tensi, which even within the decades of the Star Trek franchise, there aren't that many instances of humans making contact with and communicating with other species from beyond the galactic barrier. I believe in the original Star Trek, a malevolent alien being that came from beyond the galactic barrier. But I believe this is the first, one of the first times, if not the first time in this franchise history that we humans try to communicate with a previously unknown species. So in Star Trek, of course, most of the aliens are anthropomorphic. They're bipedal, they have two eyes, and we can recognize them in that sense and relate to them in terms of how they think and how they operate. And so the 10C is very different. And Having spoken with the showrunners and and the writers of the particular episodes that I was in, I learned that a great deal of research went into these episodes in terms of they spoke with and consulted with people who actually study this kind of thing. Imagine how communication with a, a non humanoid life form might actually happen. How would we even begin to start speaking with one another? How would we understand that we are both sentient? fairly evolved life forms with consciousness. So that to me is so exciting for me that my character gets to be a part of that.
0: I mean, we're having enough trouble speaking to one another <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> on planet Earth. I can't, even imma- I can't even imagine like what that could be like.
1: That is so true.
0: The storyline sounds really exciting. Again, Star Trek is an enormously successful franchise, but overall, through the decades and all the different incarnations of Star Trek, it has featured an incredibly diverse cast, both on screen. But, you know, I had a friend that is on Star Trek Picard, Michelle Hurd, and she and I had a conversation and she was like, you know, at the end of the day, the franchise is about others. Like the characters are of all different kinds of races and species.
1: Yes, they are.
0: What is it like for you? I mean, you're a Japanese Canadian actor Mm -hmm. that is joining a longstanding legacy of a hugely successful franchise that supported diversity for actors. And also, the storyline, ultimately, on screen, it's about others of all different kinds of races. I mean, some people are blue and have horns. Mm -hmm. What is it like for you to be able to join this franchise that has long honored diversity? in all forms.
1: It almost strangely feels like a kind of homecoming, or it strangely feels like finally getting to be in the room. Yeah. You know, and so often, I think, in film and television and the live performing arts in North America, for so long, the room has been a white room. Yes. You know, understood to be a white space, Mm -hmm. right? And it's so interesting that you mention... The historical diversity and inclusivity of the Star Trek franchise, because as a child growing up, you know, I was born in Japan, but we moved to Canada when I was three. And so I grew up in, in Canada and in Michigan in the early 70s. when the three-channel universe that existed in those days, when you came home from school, there was Gilligan's Island right. and the Merv Griffin show or the Mike Douglas show, and then invariably Trek, the, the yeah. original Star Trek. I remember vividly that there were no other Asian faces on television besides George Takei's Mr. Sulu in those days, except for a character named Mrs. Livingston on The Courtship of Eddie's Father, Bill Bixby, as a a young widower bringing up this small boy, Eddie. And their maid was a Japanese lady named Mrs. Livingston. You know, as a, a new immigrant, I just remember looking forward to seeing them on TV. It was comforting to me in some way to be on Star Trek now for all of the reasons that you've mentioned. In particular, Star Trek Discovery is even more so, I think, you would have to talk to the showrunners, but it seems to me that there is an overt conscious decision to really push the envelope in terms of inclusivity and diversity, just because, first of all, it's a matriarchal universe Yes. as opposed to the other shows. It's not just ethnic diversity that we're talking about. There's all kinds of gender diversity. Mm -hmm. So it is kind of a utopian vision of the future in that sense. So much of science fiction is dystopian, I think that Discovery, just in the way that humanity is depicted on the show, and humanity's relationship to others from outer space, it is kind of more of a utopian vision. And I'm very proud and glad to be a part of that.
0: Well, the franchise could not be more popular or more beloved. And I certainly agree with you in terms of Discovery. And I'm thrilled to hear that you're going to continue that legacy. Now, having said that, you touched upon a little bit about your upbringing. You were born in Japan, you moved to Michigan, then you went to, I think, back to Tokyo for high school.
1: For high school, yes. And that obviously was a huge culture shock.
0: Yeah, that's a whole, (laughs) you and I could definitely get into that. Tell me a little bit about some of those moments in your formative years that you remember feeling different. How did you process that? Because like you said, you'd go home, you'd watch TV, I had like maybe a few more channels than you, maybe like six. I also didn't see anybody that looked like me. I'm Chinese, born and raised in one of the boroughs of New York. So I was probably one of the very, very few Asians in my neighborhood and certainly school. And when I went to watch TV, I didn't see anyone that looked like me. So when the original version of Kung Fu was on, I was really confused at why David Carradine was in the role. And then whatever little Asian representation there was on screen, it was either portrayed by a white person Mm -hmm. or we were the butt of the joke. For you, can you talk a little bit about some of the moments that you remember and realize that, you know, there was a cultural difference? How did you sort of navigate those changes and and how did it hit you at that particular Mm -hmm. time?
1: I remember kindergarten and grade one were difficult because I had moved to Canada at the age of three, and until kindergarten just kind of interacted with my parents mainly. So I still didn't speak English particularly well when I started going to kindergarten. And I remember mm-hmm. having to go to remedial phonics classes and having trouble with the R's and L's, Right. you know, which we typically do, Japanese people, because those sounds don't exist in the Japanese language. So those early days were what I remember as being the hardest. I remember there was an instance when my parents completely lost it. I remember there were these bullies in our neighborhood who, you know, they would bully me. And I feel like I kind of took care of myself at school because I very quickly made friends and they mm-hmm. stood up for me and so on. But there were these kids, brothers in our neighborhood who would throw snowballs at our house throw snowballs at our windows and our doors. And it was an annoyance. And one day, my mother and father, they <laughs> okay. just basically stood in hiding by the door, waiting for these kids to come by and throw snowballs. And when they did, they, they rushed out and grabbed these kids and started dragging them down the street towards the police station. It was so shocking to me.
0: It scared the shit out of the kids. How old were these kids at this time? Like, what? How old were you roughly?
1: Well, I was in first grade. I think the younger the younger boy was my age, and then I think <laughs> his older brother was maybe like eight or nine. But I was very conscious of of people. I remember from an early age I was conscious of the gaze of others. You know, okay. Um, in retrospect, I would say it was the white gaze that I was conscious of, mm-hmm. right? I remember my parents dragging these kids down the street and all of the, you know, the white people on the street and driving. I mean, there's these two Asian adults dragging these white boys who are obviously now terrified and screaming and crying. To me, it was kind of a mortifying, first of all, to see my parents so angry. It was not a, a normal thing to observe. And to feel the white gaze of, you know, everyone else. The
0: whole neighborhood, right?
1: So that is a vivid memory that I have of feeling, I guess, the kind of isolation of, you know, I was like you, I was probably the only Asian kid in my class, or there might have been a couple of others in my class or in my school. And essentially, that's how it was for my entire childhood until I went back to Tokyo.
0: For those who may not be familiar of what a white gaze is, can you sort of break it down and just give people a sense of the feeling that you got in terms of when you're talking about a white gaze? Not everybody has experienced that. So can you give just a little bit of context of what that means?
1: I don't feel it anymore.
0: Right. Well, things have shifted. Particularly, yeah.
1: But as a child, if you're out at the grocery store with your parents, with your mom or whatever, and you're speaking Japanese with your parents, or your parents are speaking Japanese to you, people are looking at you because you're speaking a foreign language. You know, as a child, I was acutely aware of being embarrassed by that. Or at school, if my mom had packed my lunch with Japanese food
0: and having rice. I was
1: acutely aware of like opening my lunch and the other kids seeing what weird, smelly food might be in there.
0: Yeah, my strawberry shortcake lunchbox did not have like a turkey sandwich in it. You know, I had like these strange, like rice dishes. So it further, I felt, separated me, especially in a time where you're trying so hard to fit in and to find your person. You know, you're just growing up as a kid. Obviously, this is a memory that has really stayed with you. How did it sort of color your perspective of who you were in the eyes of society?
1: In retrospect, what I've come to understand is that For whatever reason, racism, the kind of petty microaggressions, the name calling, you know, or things like people throwing snowballs at your house, eggs on how, you know, on devil's night or wet toilet paper rolls or whatever kind of petty microaggression and vandalism and so on that goes on that I think many, many, many Asian people in North American culture have faced. What I've come to realize retrospectively is that very little of that affected me, not that I didn't face it, but for whatever reason, it didn't traumatize me or scar me the same way that it has some people. It really affected my parents more so than me.
0: Interesting. Okay.
1: For a long time as a child, I remember being embarrassed for them more than for myself because it didn't mean anything to me. But I could understand, you know, my father. He was doing postdoctorate research, you know, and he's is someone worthy of respect from society as a learned man. But one thing that I started to notice is, and this is written about in a book called *Hunger of Memory* by Richard Rodriguez. He's a Rhodes scholar, but the first person in his his family to go to college, and his parents are obviously Hispanic immigrants. In his book. The vision of who his father was at home, and if his father had to speak English in public, and how, you know, the very octave of his voice would change, right? And the way he carried himself would change, and he would suddenly become a kind of caricature of an immigrant, which was very different from the man that Richard knew as the man he was at home. Mm -hmm. And I think many of us who come from immigrant families or from racialized families Perhaps have that same experience. And, and I realized that I had that experience with my father, mm-hmm. with my parents. They were different people out in the world, out in white society, because, especially for my mother, the language barrier, because my mm-hmm. father having to work and so on, he spoke better. But in those days, in the early 70s, it was not just the language, it was also the way that people treated you. Mm-hmm. Perhaps as a child, I didn't feel that humiliation as much, because all I had to deal with was the politics of the schoolyard.
0: That's still a lot, though, Hero, at that time, you know? Yeah, I mean, that's still a lot. But yeah, I hear what you're saying.
1: If you can play sports, and you can be funny, and you can run fast, and you can hang with the other kids, a lot of those things start to solve themselves on the
0: schoolyard. I I never thought about how because I'm also the daughter of immigrant parents. That dual identity existed for my parents. And it's interesting that you bring it up because now it, it is resonating and you're right. And it's not something that I've actually intellectually thought about. Now, going back to your body of work, you are also an incredible playwright. You've won many awards, in particular for Indian Arm. Can you talk a little bit about your work as a playwright and what some of your personal experiences that you try to thread through in your work as a playwright
1: Mm -hmm. you know i'm a mid-career playwright now i won the governor general's award which is a major award here in drama in canada and being mid-career and looking back over my body of work i would say that all of my plays even when they're not explicitly about race and ethnicity you know, And every time the play's been performed, it's been performed with a white cast. It has nothing to do, from the point of view of anyone reading it, that it's not about race at all. I think that all of my work is about the relationship between the dominant culture of whiteness mm-hmm. and those of us who are on the periphery of whiteness. As East Asians, I think we are especially in our proximity to whiteness is very often a position of complicity.
0: We're going to kind of open that up a little bit because those who are not in our position don't have any idea or reference point to what the hell we're talking about. So from the time you started your career to now, obviously the landscape for Asians and minorities have changed quite substantially, even though let's not forget we've got a very long way to go hey there this is justin bartha i made a funny new podcast king of the egg cream it has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like lewis black i'm torn by my feelings for two women bobby cannavale you can eat it or if someone hits you you can put it on your cut
1: And how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream.
0: So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts. Can you talk a little bit about some of the experiences or conversations that you might have had that impacted how you identified as an actor then versus now?
1: Early on, I think I was just grateful whenever I landed a role. Just grateful. Oh, I get to be a part of this. I'm so grateful for that. Then you start to go, well, wait a minute. Yeah. (laughs) I would like to do more. And then you start running into the ceiling. Mm -hmm. My bread and butter were doctors, all kinds of medical personnel, right? The emergency room doctor, and I kind of call them doctor exposition. It's like right. the doctor who delivers, you know, tells the protagonist mm-hmm. they're dying of cancer or that their daughter's dying of cancer and it's untreatable. Or It's the doctor comes and delivers the exposition of bad news and so on. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, I was happy early on just to be landing roles and making a living. Right. That gave me time to write and do other things. But once you get to the point where you want to do more, there didn't seem to be any avenues of getting to the next level. Right. There's something that I like to call cultural inscription, which you know, other people may use the term tropes or archetypes. Yeah. At its mm-hmm. base level, it's also, you know, we could just call them stereotypes. But a really good example of an inscription for me, for Asian males, is the coroner. Mm -hmm. And for Asian females, it's the newscaster. At some point, late 60s, early 70s, there was a cultural inscription that got writ into the cultural imagination. Connie Chung. Okay. And, you know, the coroner to the stars, Noguchi, Thomas Noguchi. Mm -hmm. So these were actual people who existed and gained a level of fame for doing what they do. And because of those inscriptions in media, you suddenly have a situation where, oh, there's this Asian actress audition. Well, well, let's make her the newscaster. Mm-hmm. There's this Asian guy. Oh, make him the corner. Right. And these cultural inscriptions, I think, also reinforce damaging stereotypes that already exist in the culture. Asian women as subservient to the ultimate voice of authority, the male anchor. So like, basically now, if you look, every major media center in North America, turn on the TV and watch the news yeah. and see who's on there. That's a cultural inscription. And obviously, for Asian women wanting to go into journalism, it created tremendous opportunities. Yes. But it became a very narrow box for Asian female Asian actors because that's all they had to do. And then for me, in those days, right? Early on, I played so many coroners because the coroner also reinforces this stereotype of Asian men having a kind of sinister or impure relationship to death. Right, Going back to Fu Manchu, kamikazes, and there's like a kind of image of death cult and uh, sinister association with death. Which, not surprisingly, not coincidentally, Asian male as coroner reinforces that. At
0: that particular time in your career, again, parts were very limited. They were very cliche. This is not an excuse for it, but the first draft is always garbage for anything. But you are a working actor. You wanted to be a part of it. But when you were frustrated with the parts you were getting or the tropes you found yourself in, how did it impact you as a person and your viewpoints of how you saw yourself, your identity? Mm-hmm. When you kept getting handed these stereotypes and you know you wanted the work. I mean, it's what you love to do. It's what you deserve to do and is your talent. But you're also doing this because it's all you can get because of the structural hierarchy. But you're also reinforcing this trope. How did you sort of personally deal with this frustration? Yeah.
1: When we're talking about stereotypes and cliches, there's obviously the Mickey Rooney in Breakfast at Tiffany's. There's the absolutely horrible caricature with the thick glasses and the buck teeth and the yeah, and horrible. the nonsensical gibberish accent and so on. Those are, you know, cliches and stereotypes. So one rung above that in terms of offensiveness are some of these cultural inscriptions. For me, there was a huge disconnect. Between who I was as a person and how the industry kept on seeing me. Right. On the one hand, that was interesting to me.
0: You're very kind. Yes.
1: The way that I was able to handle it is that I didn't see that there was any malevolent force. There wasn't a star chamber of white people, you know. Beneath the Hollywood Hills going, how can we keep these Asians down? You know, (laughs) we'll only give them coroner (laughs) roles, you know. (laughs) Meanwhile, there were more interesting things that were coming up. There were people in the industry who were, from a very early point in my career, who were pushing the envelope of what Asian men could be seen to be doing. Right, because what it comes down to is there's an idea in our culture, in the media, of what can Asian men be seen to be doing. Right, and it's changing now. But for decades, you know, Asian men aren't sexy. Yeah, we can't certainly seem to be sexy. We can't let them be this, or we can't let them be that, and so there was a narrow range of what Asian men could be seen to be doing. And and I had people, you know, allies who were. Early on, started pushing the boundary of of what I could be seen to be doing. And that helped a lot. Then from my own internal side, I was like, it's important for me to be seen regardless of the role. If I get one of these roles that is simply a cultural inscription, let me take it and bring as much humanity to it as I can. Let me try and round that out and bring dimension And individuality to it. That's awesome. To the extent that I can. So that's kind of how I justified taking a lot of these roles when I was young. And then as I got further on, I got to the point where, well, I can turn these down now. I don't have to do them.
0: I'm going to take that a step further. From what I can see, is you made it more than what other people may have saw it as early on in your career. Hopefully. Yeah. And I think that you are you have been on the forefront of pushing that conversation and changing that narrative for those who may not have had the wider perspective, let's say, of what Asians can be viewed as. Now, through your career as an actor and especially as a playwright, because I think many guests have come on and have said, you know, we need representation of all kinds in every role, especially behind the scenes and writers and playwrights and storytellers such as yourself. So as a playwright, you have, as you mentioned, gotten your arms around a lot of socially important issues that need to be paid attention to through story. Can you talk about how you're doing your part to continue the work that you have been doing as a storyteller?
1: As I mentioned a short while ago, being of East Asian ancestry and especially Japanese, I feel that my proximity to the dominant culture of whiteness is there's a lot of complicity there. In apartheid South Africa, there was a term honorary white and it was bestowed to the Japanese. For the simple reason that the Japanese were going to buy however many metric tons of South African pig iron. The idea was, well, it's rather awkward for this major trading partner of ours to not be considered white when they come to visit. To their credit, the nation of South Korea was also offered honorary white status and rejected it. The Japanese accepted Now, Japan is a G7 nation, the only Asian nation that is a G7 nation. And now, obviously today, when we look at the socioeconomic status and clout that Japan and South Korea and China have in the world, that is very troubling to me, vis-a-vis the way that even more underrepresented and underprivileged groups are treated. Mm. And as East Asians, which side are we on? Are we on the side of the oppressed as we once were, or have we assimilated to such an extent with white culture that we're on the side of the oppressors?
0: Those are tough questions, Hiro.
1: And I'm also married to uh, a woman who is indigenous. These are kind of topics that I feel very acutely in my personal life. These are themes and topics that I try to address in my writing.
0: That's a lot to chew on you know, in terms of what side we sit on. But for you, as a playwright, how do you bring these critically important elements in, but in a way that audiences can accept it?
1: Yeah, that's an interesting question. And I've often thought about it myself. I don't consider myself, and I don't think I am, an intellectual. Playwriting The experience of being in the theater as an audience member, I always think when I'm acting or when I'm writing, I'm cognizant of what I want to do to the audience. And what I want to do to the audience has nothing to do with intellectual pursuits. Mm -hmm. Now, there are many, many artists who come at it from an intellectual point of view. Right. But I'm not that guy. I'm coming at it from an emotional point of view. I want to do to the audience what the great works of art that I respond to do to me, which is terrify me, make me cry, make me laugh. I'm, I'm trying to go for the emotional response. That prevents me from writing political pamphlets.
0: Okay, I, I agree. And I actually hope that I'm also the type of producer that also is about connecting on a human level. Versus political, because personally, for me,
1: mm-hmm, exactly, I
0: think that's actually a more powerful tool in terms of connecting with people and getting people to be open to hearing or feeling what I feel versus you know, being informed of X, y, and z.
1: That's a powerful thing to do because it immediately inspires empathy because even if you disagree with something or someone's ideas, if you emotionally feel, what they're going through, right. then there's understanding.
0: So when you're writing these plays and you're coming at it with both the intellectual and learned perspective, what it's like to be an underrepresented person or to be seen by the world as a trope, as Asians, we have made huge strides. But again, that's not to say that we don't have a very, very long way to go. And you know, this is another conversation for another time, but I feel like right now I'm living in a time where we're going both forwards and backwards at the same time as an Asian person. Do you agree with that?
1: Oh, absolutely. I mean, so many aspects of America are literally like we're going to the Republic of Gilead from the Handmaid's know, I mean, that's literally what we're talking about.
0: Yeah, totally. I'll bring the hats next time for us, Hero. But like you as a writer, when you have this perspective as a learned person, but also as a human being that has so much empathy and feeling, you want to connect on that level. But also, you know what it's like from your wife's point of view, being indigenous, being a minority and seeing the landscape change and not only seeing it, literally living and experiencing it. And you have kids that are us, which are mixed, right? How do you bring those elements into a story that you're writing? What are the, the elements that you make sure you include as a playwright?
1: Well, my plays, I think, are all multi-generational and multi-ethnic. So I'm populating my universes with characters that reflect my reality. Everyone is a hybrid of some sort. It's all gray because the other thing that I want to mention in this conversation is I think something which in life is perhaps a failing of mine, which is that I'm very, in terms of morals and uh, ideas of right and wrong and good and evil, there's a lot of gray for me. My wife is very clear about what's right and what's wrong. Okay. I'm a kind of personality that could probably have been a good defense lawyer. You could (laughs) probably have given me heinous criminals and I would go, okay, I can figure out how to defend this person in court. You know, there's a lot of gray for me in that sense. And in life, it's perhaps a a character flaw.
0: I don't know. That could be argued.
1: As a playwright, once again, it's something that prevents me from pamphleteering, from getting on a soapbox and making a political point and ramming it down the audience's throat. Yeah. The one last thing that I want to mention in terms of my process is there are three keywords which are very central to what I want to do as an artist. Those words are ritual, poetry, and transgression. Ritual, all theater, all art comes from a place of ritual. Mm-hmm. And in the theater, I want to hearken back to those rituals where there are cavemen sitting around a campfire telling stories and okay. making each other very scared of what lurks in the shadows beyond the campfire.
0: Okay? And yeah. when
1: you walk into a theater, it seems to me that is the collective ritual that we're still, entering into yeah poetry is obviously the beauty of words right and that's part of theater and then the final thing is transgression because the art that i love the most Uh is transgressive ultimately it's art that makes me feel like i shouldn't be watching this Mm. i shouldn't be listening to this there's something dangerous going on here right And I am afraid of it. When that happens, that is what really turns my crank more than anything else in the world. And so it helps me to make characters who are surprising. And that prevents me from the characters being, you know, two-dimensional and predictable, right?
0: That's when we start to fall into the whole stereotype thing again. I'll say this, going back to what you were saying in terms of being black and white, things are much more clear-cut for your wife and you're more gray. I'll fess up that I tend to be a little bit more like your wife, but I actually think the more realistic perspective is yours, which is shades of gray, because as people, nothing is really that clear cut. We can embody many conflicting values and truths all at once. And I'm not sure that things are that clear cut. I think it's almost like a fluid scale that constantly moves depending on the situation.
1: Now that we're on this topic, I wonder, though, if this is simply a privilege that, you know, because I'm in a fairly secure position in my life and I have a certain socioeconomic status as a heterosexual East Asian male, that I have the privilege, I can afford to view the world as gray. Whereas you as a woman, and certainly my wife as an indigenous woman, that's maybe not possible. You don't have that leeway to view the world as, you know, in grays.
0: That's really interesting. You've got
1: to stand up for what's right in a way that maybe I don't have to.
0: This is so interesting. Maybe you're right. I mean, maybe as a woman, especially as a double minority, I have to almost overcompensate or overcorrect And maybe that's why I'm so sort of black and white. I actually struggle when I land in the shades of gray because then I'm like, "Ah, I don't know which way to go. Now, pulling back and looking at your entire career, we've obviously made strides. We've obviously gone backwards at the same time too. What do you hope to continue doing so we can continue moving forward? And what would you encourage others that may not be in media, just the quote unquote, everyday Joe. What can you forward that would help other people continue pushing forward in widening perspectives and understanding that representation and inclusion and equity Mm -hmm. is something that benefits everyone?
1: First, especially from the Asian perspective, Yes. I really encourage young people, whether they want to get into the arts or media or whatever line of work that they want to get into, that they need to follow their own bliss, not live for their parents. I think in Asian families, that's still such a huge issue. That's tough. <laughs> there are a handful of respectable, according to our parents, a handful of respectable pursuits in life. And, you know, if I'm any example, you don't have to do that. Your parents will still love you. And in fact, if you make any kind of success of yourself, they'll be inordinately proud, more so than if you were a doctor or an engineer or something. They'll just like brag to their friends till the sun goes down. You know, the the part of society that's moving forward, (laughs) I'm very heartened by that aspect of society because there are so many more opportunities for not just uh, those of us who are Asian, but people of all colors and creeds, there's just so many more opportunities for everyone to get to participate fully in the society in whatever it is that they want to do. Right. And I think in order to move forward as a society, all of us need to do what we really want to do, as opposed to what society tells us we can do or what we feel oh, we're allowed to do because of he said that or she said that or our parents said that. Right. Everyone pursue your happiness and we'll all be happy. We won't be living lives of quiet desperation. And that's good because when you are living a life of quiet desperation, that's when you latch on to these uh, cult personalities who give you some kind of false power and some false sense of belonging to something that's bigger than you, Mm. you can be lured into that. Whereas if you're already living your bliss, you're less susceptible to that kind of thing, it seems to me.
0: Yeah. Let me ask you this. I know that you and I talked a little bit about this offline, and certainly we did touch upon it here. The dichotomy of identity. You were born in Japan, came to Michigan, then went back to Tokyo, then came to Canada. In many ways, you have a foot in each culture or each world. And I will say this, I, in in a much smaller scale, experienced that too. I was not Chinese enough for a part of my family. And certainly when I went back to Hong Kong, people were really confused that I didn't sound like a Chinese person or I sounded like a white person speaking Chinese Anyway, there was this whole sort of question of identity and authenticity Mm -hmm. coming at me and also internally that I sort of grappled with. Now, I'm sure you've had a taste of that as well. My question is, how have you reconciled all of those sort of components?
1: Yeah, it's something that I'm really struggling with now, this idea of authenticity. Yeah, I do more than many... uh, Nikkei or many North America you know, Asian Americans. I have more of a connection to Asia. So, inso- insofar as my parents still live there, in fact, my entire family lives there except for my sister. You know, I was born there. I went to high school in Asia. I lived for a couple years in Tokyo after college. I speak the language. I read and write. Right. So, in that sense, I have more of a connection with Asia. But the question of authenticity is one that really. Is frustrating me and that I struggle with now. Um, In film and TV now, there are so many shows with predominantly Asian casts and so on. But authenticity now becomes a huge issue, Mm -hmm. especially if there are Japanese producers and directors and Japanese stars on board. And then, of course, you know, there's the white people in Hollywood too who are like, well, we need authenticity right? And is this guy who's lived in Vancouver for 30 years, is he really authentically Japanese anymore? So that's something that I struggle with. And I have to admit that I certainly feel more authentically myself in the multicultural milieu of North America than I do in the homogeneously Japanese culture.
0: Fair. I get that. I do
1: feel more of an outsider now in Japan than I do in North America. I get that. And I guess that's a good thing in terms of like, well, North American culture has come so far that someone who's Asian Canadian or Asian American can feel at home here. There's the flip side. There's a dark side of every coin. And, you know, the dark side of that coin is that we have this epidemic of anti-Asian hate crime at the same time yeah so this this is something that I have not reconciled and I am uh, I'm struggling with as we speak.
0: Yeah, that's a whole nother conversation and I- I'm definitely struggling with that too. I've absolutely loved talking with you and I'm so thrilled for your success for Star Trek, but you have things to do. So Hiro, let me know who you are and what you represent.
1: I'm Hiro Kanagawa, actor writer. I represent the bridge.
0: Thank you to Hiro Kanagawa for his time, for sharing his perspective and for using his talents to further diversity and inclusion. Check him out on Star Trek Discovery and I'll have his social handles in the episode description. If you like this episode, please subscribe and share and leave a review on Apple Podcasts, Good Pods, or wherever you're listening. And every episode is available for download, so collect them all. Next up is J.R. Martinez. Just three weeks into my deployment. I'm driving to Humvee through a city car, Carvalho, when the front left tire went over a roadside bomb. I was the driver, three other troops in the truck with me. The other three were thrown out of the truck from the explosion, but I was trapped inside. And I was trapped inside for five minutes, completely conscious, screaming and yelling at the top of my lungs for someone to please come and pull me out. Hey, what's up, everyone? I'm JR Martinez, actor, author, veteran, ah, maybe that winner of Dancing with the Stars once upon a time. And guess what? I'm coming to repping. You will be so inspired when you hear Jr. I love hearing from you, so follow me on Twitter at Reppin Podcast and DM me on Instagram at Reppin underscore podcast. Always thank you to my hit squad, Nelson Panero and Gracie Kong. Reppin is a Suburban Outlaw Productions. Until next time, stand up and represent. <laughs> My name is Jenny Owen-Youngs.
1: And I am Kristen Russo.
0: And together, we run Buffering, a rewatch adventure, a family of podcasts moving through our favorite 90s genre television. If
1: you're a fan of Buffy the Vampire Slayer, well, great news for you. Our very first podcast adventure took us through all seven seasons of the series. We covered it spoiler-free, episode by episode. For those of you who want to start the show for the first time, you can find that podcast pretty easily. It's called Buffering the Vampire Slayer.
0: Inside that podcast, you'll also find an original song that pairs with each glorious episode of Buffy and original character jingles for so many of our Buffy favorites.
1: Buffering has been praised in places like Time, Esquire, Paste Magazine, and the New York Times, and we've chatted with dozens of cast members, writers, directors, and fans along the way. Come hang out and re-watch some of your favorite television with us and a wonderful community of listeners.
0: Learn more at bufferingcast.com or find us on socials at bufferingcast.